Welcome to the BMGA Leadership Speaker Series podcast, hosted by Bimi Abudu, the founder and managing partner of BMGA Enterprise Limited, a finishing school for the fourth industrial revolution. On this podcast, great leaders share the career path and leadership journey of triumphs and challenges with the intention of fostering and nurturing the leadership potential of the next generation of leaders. From moguls in the entertainment industry to entrepreneurs, there's a learning point for every aspiring leader. On today's episode, we have Dr. Christian Bush, the author of The Serendipity Mindset, The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck, where he makes the case that serendipity is a skill, resulting from a mindset that allows people to see and act on opportunities in seemingly unrelated facts or events. He directs the CGA Global Economy Program at New York University and teaches on purpose-driven business, entrepreneurship, emerging markets, and innovation. He is the co-founder of Sandbox Network, a leading community of young innovators, as well as of Leaders on Purpose, an organization convening leading CEOs. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Gary. So I think I've mentioned to you um, already that this book is definitely my favorite book <laughs> of 2020. And for me, I found that it provided um, a scientific framework that supports my belief system. I truly believe in serendipity. But before we go into the book, I would like um, for us to get a better understanding of your background, which I believe um, might give us context on your outlook of life and who you are today. So could you please share with us where you grew up and what your upbringing was like? Absolutely, and good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to be here with you today. Um, I actually was in Lagos before the world closed down, so um, I'm very nostalgic talking with you now and, and uh, hope we'll get to meet in person at some point, um, wherever you are in the world at the moment, and then hopefully at some point also in, uh, in Nigeria. Um, I'm delighted to be here. I'm, I grew up in Heidelberg in Germany, um, where Goethe and Schiller wrote their poems. It's very kind of philosophically beautiful, romantic, but a bit tiny, and so kind of I was always trying to push boundaries and was one of these kind of rebellious kids who were always seeing how far you can go. Um, I actually had to repeat a year in high school, um, and then I had to, at some point, uh, change schools. Um, essentially, I was thrown out of it. Um, didn't find a real kind of uh, channel for my energy back then. Um, and then at some point, uh, I, I had, a, um, I had a, uh, a car accident when I was 18. I essentially transferred all my kind of um, lifestyle, you know, which was all about pushing boundaries into my driving style as well. Um, which didn't work that well and, and so I had a car crash and um, I will not forget the policeman who came to the scene um, he walked by the car and he was like oh my god he's still alive and so it was oh, this wow. idea of okay hey he was supposed to be dead and so um, I, I think that that stuck with me I started reading a lot of books about meaning and how we can find meaning in crisis um, and so that took me on a, on a kind of intense journey trying to figure out how do you make sense out of a world where you know you could run in front of a car every day right you could mm -hmm. every day you know, could be over. And so what can you do in life that really is meaningful enough, that is purposeful enough, that it, it, it is worth it? And, and so, um, you know, I asked myself a lot of questions after that, that accident in terms of stupid questions, right? In terms of if I would have died, who would have come to my funeral? Who would have actually cared? Was it all worth it? And at that point, it wasn't. And so I, I realized for myself that what I enjoy most is bringing together people, bringing together ideas, seeing how they all map each other and, and how I can be part of a meaningful impact. And so I, I started out as a community builder, um, building a community called Sandbox, where we bring together young innovators around the world, help them make ideas happen. And then um, after and after kind of built a couple of enterprises, social enterprises. And then at some point my inner imposter came out and uh, 
you know, this kind of idea of, okay, we're building all these things, but do we actually know what kind of impact we really have? And so I went more into academia and that's kind of more the, the academic, trying to figure out what is something that um, underlies all of this. And, and that's how I think when we, we, we started talking also, because one of the things that I've seen among the most purpose-driven, successful people I've worked with, I've researched, and, 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 and also how, how, how I've lived my life is really that they have something in common, which is they intuitively cultivate serendipity. They intuitively do what you're going to be doing as well, which is kind of making sense out of the unexpected and turning that into positive outcomes. And so that's really what I got super excited about and what the, the book and everything is about is really to say, how do we turn the unexpected into positive outcomes as a, as a life philosophy, as something you do every day, um, where every moment can kind of shape your life for, for something meaningful and, and great. And so, um, yeah, that's also, I guess, how we met then in the end. And so, it um, is. <laughs> I think it's worth stating um, because after I read the book, I was so, I was really moved by it. And I was moved by it because it really did help explain some of the events that have happened in my life. I think we discussed this already where for me, I mean, I do, my faith plays a huge part in who I am but you also realize that there's certain opportunities you have that others have as well. And how come you're able to connect the dots that others are not able to. Um, but before we go into the book, because I know you're gonna give us a presentation, I think it's very important that we sort of all learn how, to, how we can really harness serendipity. But I kind of want us to talk about 2020. 2020 has been a year filled with so many uncertainties. I mean, it's a year like no other that we've all seen. You talk about how we transform uncertainties into opportunities. Before we go into the book, I want you to talk a little bit about, would you say 2020 has brought more opportunities than challenges from your perspective? And if so, how? You know, that's, that's, a, great, that's a, a great and really interesting question because, you know, it's fascinating how a lot of times when we think about things such as serendipity and, and kind of opportunities, a lot of times they, they are driven by you know, moments that make our life even more beautiful, even better. Mm -hmm. But like at the moment, a lot of it is, is out of necessity, right? It has to make our life like otherwise we can't really survive, right? Like in a way, if you're uh, in, in any kind of situation, even like, I mean, I'm here in New York and, you know, breweries, for example, turned into hand sanitizer companies, right? Because essentially, mm -hmm. if you previously were a brewery, and now you can't sell your stuff anymore to restaurants because they closed down. And then unexpectedly someone realizes, oh my God, we can use our alcohol to produce hand sanitizer. Like that is kind of like a very serendipitous tweak. That is a pivot that you make, but it's out of necessity. And that's actually something where um, I think that's happening a lot at the moment, that people out of necessity have more of that. Um, and I also think that in 10 years, we might look back and say, wow, like a lot of innovation would have come out of this period. A lot of rethinking mm -hmm. of how we think about society, about business and everything else. Um, but also, of course, I mean, I had COVID in March and it was terrible. Like I couldn't breathe. I, it was like a, a really rough patch. And, uh, you know, I started rereading the Viktor Frankl book around men's search for meaning and trying to find yes. meaning in that moment. And I find it fascinating because to me also, again, it was like a, a wake up call again of like refocusing on the things I'm, I'm really excited about versus what I got um, into my routines of. And so I think it's interesting because, you know, a lot of my work has been in, in extreme low-income contexts. So, mm -hmm. for example, in Kibera in Kenya, um, which is one of the largest kind of impoverished areas in the world, in the Cape Flats in Cape Town, which is a which is a, um, a quite challenging area as well. Um, and and some of the most beautiful serendipitous things came out of those contexts because people out of necessity have shaped that. And so I think that's something where actually the West can learn a lot at the moment from those contexts where traditionally people have been in resource constraints. And really kind of reframing rethinking 
how do we think about a situation like at the moment and trying to figure out how do we still make the best out of it and, and i think um that's why i'm so fascinated also by you know um doing work in in, in contexts where you have kind of extreme challenge because i think there's so mm -hmm. much to learn from it to learn from it so when i read the book one of the things that sort of jumped out at me um is how you defined like smart lock and i know that i've had numerous conversations with friends about how we define lock can you differentiate blind lock from smart lock for us then this will be the last question then we can go into your presentation yeah absolutely and you know i mean i guess when we think about luck we most of the times think about blind luck right so this idea that um, you know, being born into a loving family or being born into kind of a good network or these kind of things that we can't influence, right? They just happen and they give us a different base level of which we start from, right? So that's that's kind of a given. And we have to work on kind of societal inequality and all these things that are there that are passively there when we, when we literally are born into the world. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one part. But then the other part is really about this kind of active smart luck that's about essentially seeing something in the unexpected and turning it to something positive. And so um, that's what, what that kind of serendipity mindset is about to say, yes, there are a lot of things that are given in the world, but then also there are some things we can work for and create our own luck. And that is really kind of the, the focus of, of that kind of serendipity. Okay, thank you so much for sharing that. Okay, so now you can please, um, if you can give us a presentation so we can all take a step back and learn from you. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, going, we had a wonderful conversation earlier, right, uh, in, in our other calls about how much serendipity you attract. So I think it's also going to be super interesting, I think, for everyone in the room to learn more from you, right, in terms of how, I mean, they anyways do, right? I, I guess it's, it's anyways been, but uh, I think I, I've been fascinated by how you've been navigating this. And so I think, um, so, so I'd love to first briefly talk about, you know, the bigger picture, what are some of the key things of why we need the kind of mindset, then how do we turn uncertainty into opportunity? And then how does that relate to kind of living a good life, but also change, like, like solving a couple of the problems that, that we see in the world? Because obviously one of the big things at the moment um, that has been, you know, very pressuring for, for a long time, but I think it becomes more and more clear how many societal and environmental challenges we're facing that are so complex that we can't just plan them out, right? Like, I can't tell you now how we can fix poverty, right? But, but like a lot of times we have to work across different stakeholders on working kind of to, to locally um, tackle particular problems. And a lot of these kind of solutions to that emerge serendipitously. They emerge unexpectedly. We can plan a couple of things, but then we learn more about local community and then essentially have to adjust to it. And so um, because problems are so complex out there, societally, environmentally, and so on, we have to kind of shift our mindset away from this idea that we can know everything in advance. I mean, the world is just changing too fast for that. And COVID has been an example of this. Um, and that has been throughout history, right? That civilization has always depended on making the best out of the unknown. And that companies have always, you know, the real leadership always has shown in situations of crises, right? When a hurricane breaks out, when a tornado happens, that's when people look up to leaders and say, how are they acting in a period where it isn't easy, where you have to do trade-offs and, and, and learn from it? And so um, we just finished actually a study with uh, 43 CEOs around the world that run big companies. So we sat down with them and we're trying to figure out what is it that makes you a successful leader? And so, you know, um, that's like people like the CEO of Best Buy or MasterCard or Procter & Gamble, PayPal, like, like um, most of the, the big companies that try to become a bit more purpose-driven. And, you know, it's fascinating because most of them see the unexpected as the one key definition or key defining factor for their leadership style. But in times of crisis, 
it shows who they really are as a leader. And so at Best Buy, for example, um, Hubert Jolie, who, who was the chairman of Best Buy and the CEO, like for them, the Hurricane Maria, for example, in Puerto Rico, was a huge kind of factor because, you know, this, this hurricane destroyed a couple of things on the island. And the first thing they, they were saying is, look, our values are we take care of our employees. We're family, which means we got to fly them out. We got to work with the local community, whatever it takes. And so they had, you know, tough calls with investors because they were like, look, this will cost us some money. But because they did it, it was the right thing to do. But also in the mid run, it kind of increased employee productivity. It increased loyalty of customers and, and employees. And the point is that was exactly the point where people were looking for real leadership. And, 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 and it kind of like um, in a way in the long run also was, was, you know, like the right thing to do, but also the thing that really defines the leadership of the company. And that's an interesting thing. I mean, going to your point also, right, that the unexpected a lot of dry times might be out of necessity we have to do something but also then a lot of times you know the most beautiful things in life happen um, and innovations up to 50 percent of innovations happen out of the unexpected right um, um, and so here's a couple of examples just to bring it home for everyone can anyone guess what the thing on the uh, upper right is wait is that Okay, I think I'll be cheating when I say this. That's Viagra, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed it is. And so, and so that is exactly one of the one of the key examples, right? Where a couple of decades ago, a couple of researchers they were researching a medication for angina, the disease, and then they saw some kind of movement in male participants' trousers. And what would we usually do? We would say, "Oh my God, that's embarrassing!" Right? That that's something we should just ignore. It's just like a bad quote-unquote side effect. They said the opposite. They said, you know what, that's unexpected, but a lot mm. of men might have a problem in that department. So why don't we, um, you know, focus on what that is and then essentially develop a medication around this. That's how, quote unquote, unexpectedly, how serendipitously um, Viagra evolved. Um, the same with, can anyone guess what the, what the bottom, uh, uh, the lower bottom thing is uh, on, the, on the lower right? Oh, I don't know. What is that? So, so, so that's a, a potato washing machine. Um, and so the potato washing machine, is, um, I've, I've been working with the, um, it's a company in China. They are now the biggest company for refrigerators, washing machines in the world. And they've been, um, you know, they got calls from farmers and farmers told them, Hey, we're trying to wash our potatoes in your washing machine, but it doesn't seem to work. <laughs> and so, you know, what we usually do, we would say, well, it's a clothes washing machine. Don't wash your potatoes in a washing machine, right? It's not made for that. They did the opposite. They said, you know what? It's unexpected that um, they wash their potatoes, but there's a lot of farmers in China who might have a similar problem. So why don't we build in a dirt filter and make it a potato washing machine? And so that's the potato washing machine emerged, which became a full-fledged product. Uh, on the bottom left, you see the brewery example that I mentioned earlier that turned into mm -hmm. a hand sanitizer company. Um, we can talk later if we still have time about Telex Volcano, which was a really cool event that came serendipitously. And then, of course, you know, if you think about your own lives, right, how often like you plan things out, but then the unexpected happens, right? Maybe how you run into someone in a coffee shop, you know, if you have erratic hand movements like I do, you spill coffee all the time. And so, you know, in a coffee shop, imagine the situation, you spill coffee on someone, you send some kind of sense of like there might be a connection and now you have two options, right? The one option is you're just saying, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Here's a napkin. And then you walk outside and you're like, ah, I should have talked with this person. What could that have been? Could that have been a love interest, a co-founder, whatever it is? 
Um, or the other option being, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I was so uh, excited by this book, which I was just reading and XYZ and you start a conversation and, and it might lead somewhere. The point is that all of these examples have in common something that we've seen with um, a lot of ideas, a lot of encounters that we've been mapping over the last years of what successful people do differently. And so what they have in common is that they all depend on some kind of serendipity trigger, some kind of thing that happens that's unexpected, right? So um, that might be the movement in male participants' trousers, that might be spilling the coffee, that might be farmers calling up and saying, you know, our, our machine is breaking down, um, all these kind of things that are, or COVID, like all these things that are unexpected, right? It's an unexpected thing that happens. But then we can connect the dots, we can do something with it. And, you know, related to some kind of like solution, some kind of other problem that's, that's out there that we can solve with it. And then we need the tenacity to, to go with it. And that comes to your earlier question around what, what smart luck is all about. Smart luck really is about saying serendipity, these kind of positive unexpected outcomes, is not about just something that happens to us. It's a process that we can influence and we can influence every step. We can influence creating more triggers, like, like creating more meaningful accidents. We can make accidents more meaningful by connecting dots and by doing something with it. And we can train ourselves in having more tenacity and more grit to actually do something with it and have it happen more often. And so that's actually something where if you think about it, we miss serendipity all the time. We might not see it, right? We might not see any of the things I just mentioned as an opportunity for something to, to be positive, right? Mm -hmm. And actually yeah. a lot of times it comes out of bad luck, right? A lot of times the best things come out of a period of really bad luck and then it turns into good luck if we have the tenacity to actually go with it and, and do something with it. And so that's really one of the key things here to say, at the end of the day, we need to want to see it, we need to want to connect dots, and we need to have the tenacity for it. Now, what's holding us back? Like, if, if this is there, like, what is, why don't we have much more of it? Obviously, a lot of us have a lot of biases, right? Um, <laughs> we, we tend to underestimate the unexpected all the time. We think we can plan things out. Uh, we tend to have an illusion of control, right? We need this feeling that we are in control. Uh, unfortunately, mm -hmm. we are not always in control. Um, we also have like certain ideas of like how the world looks like, a certain fixedness of it. Um, you know, you will see that things like mobile banking or other things usually come out of uh, contexts such as Kenya or else where people out of necessity were thinking, oh, um, if I don't have a ATM in my village, um, then maybe I can use my phone to get money from A to B. And so a radical innovation that happens in a context where you don't have that many ATMs in, in villages versus in the West where you have an ATM in every like, corner of every small village, you don't think about these kind of things because you, you have to unlearn the old kind of structures and, and the old systems. And so a lot of times we're functionally fixed and the same thing, right? If you have a hammer, um, you will always, when you want to put the nail in the, uh, in, the, in, the wall, in the wall, you always think about where to find a hammer. But if you never saw a hammer, you will take whatever thing you have that is heavy and that you can put the, the hammer in. So that's really kind of how we think about the world as well. We put it into boxes. But one of the major ones that, that, that we do is, is this kind of post-rationalization. We've probably all done it with our, um, with our CV, right? Where we, we tell a story of, oh yeah, I did this and then I wanted to do this. And then I moved into this company in this area because I always wanted to do it. Yeah, not Very really. Very true. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, you have a certain plan, but then like life happens, right? And like you run yeah. into someone who gives you a job or something, and then you tell it as if it was um, always planned. And so we post-rationalize and that brushes serendipity out of our stories, even though it happens all the time. And now um, 
you know, just to bring that point home, there's there's a lot of experiments actually around um, kind of luck, how people, for example, who believe they are lucky. Actually, can we, um, maybe we can, I don't know if we can can do this here, but we have, I think with 30 people, we can do it later if we still have time, we could do some okay. experiments ourselves. Um, but, but one experiment um, that a colleague of mine did was to take people who self-identify as very lucky and people who self-identify as very unlucky. And then he says, okay, walk down the street, go into a coffee shop, grab a coffee, sit down, and then we'll have the interview. What he doesn't tell them is that uh, across the street, there's hidden cameras, there's a five pound note, so there's money in front of the, the door. And then inside the coffee shop, there's only one chair with, next to this super successful businessman who can make every dream happen. And now they take one lucky person, so someone who says, good things always happen to me, I'm a good, like, I expect people to be good and, and X, Y, Z, and one person who self-identifies as extremely unlucky. So someone who says, bad things always happen to me, I'm always in accidents, this kind of thing. And so they ask, okay, walk down the street and do that. Now, the lucky person walks down the street, sees the five pound note, picks it up, goes inside, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, has a wonderful conversation, they exchange business cards and potentially an opportunity coming out of it. We don't know that part. The unlucky person walks down the street, steps over the five pound note, doesn't see it, goes inside, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, ignores the businessman, that's that. At the end of the day, they ask both people, so how was your day today? And so the unlucky person, uh, the lucky person says, it was amazing, I made new friends, so the barista and the, the business person, I found money in the street, and you know, potential opportunity coming out of it. We don't know that part. Now, the unlucky person just says, well, nothing really happened. And so that's the kind of importance of framing, right? How we can Absolutely. That how often people who actually are in a certain mindset tend to have more luck, even if they have exactly the same situation happening, meeting exactly the same people and, and so on. There's a lot of other um, experiments that are there in terms of how we can trace back serendipity. Um, we can talk more about this later, um, but I wanna briefly share with you a couple of, of practices of how we can create more serendipity in our lives. Um, just to kind of finish up that part of the, the conversation also. Um, one is really um, one that we can use in our day-to-day -day conversations, right? Uh, even on Zoom or wherever we are virtually, um, which is really about asking questions differently. So not just asking, what do you do? And like the questions that put people into boxes, but questions that are more about, you know, what's on your mind? What inspired you about X, Y, Z? Something that opens up um, the, the opportunity space um, and that's the same with how we respond to questions, right? Do we, um, if someone asks us, what do you do? We can just say, oh, I'm in education or I'm in business or whatever it is, or we can set some hooks. Um, and so there's this wonderful entrepreneur in London, uh, Ollie Barrett. If you would ask him, what do you do? He would be like, well, you know, I'm a technology entrepreneur, but recently, read it, like, recently started reading into the philosophy of science but what I'm really excited about is playing the piano. And so what he does here is he gives you three potential hooks where you could be like, oh my God, such a coincidence. I just started hosting piano matinees. We should cope up. Or such a coincidence. My brother just set up a philosophy of science club. You should join. Whatever it is, like we gave a little bit more information about our actual underlying interests, which allows others to connect the dots for us and makes it more probable that, that serendipity can happen. Um, Another one is around uh, looking at mistakes or crisis differently. Um, we talked about the example of, of Viagra um, or of, of Best Buy, but there's also like um, really cool practices we can use in our companies uh, or in our organizations in general. Um, one is the, the project funeral. 
So the, it's like a post-mortem where the idea is that if a project didn't work out, so let's say, you know, usually when you work on a project or an idea and it doesn't work out, we're trying to hide it, right? We don't want to talk about it because it's like, oh my God, like I don't want to be a failure. I don't want to be someone who kind of messes things up and whatever. So the problem is that a lot of times we don't really learn from each other because we essentially hide away the real learning, which comes from mm. failure, not from, from success. And sure. so there's this, this practice where the idea is that whenever something doesn't work out, the person who is responsible for it presents it to people from other divisions and kind of just lays it to rest and says, this is what we learned from it. So it's not about celebrating failure. It's about celebrating the learning from something that didn't work, the learning from experimentation. And so in this example um, of one of the companies I've been collaborating with, they had this um, like window glass, a window frame, and the idea was that the light wouldn't reflect. Um, so yeah. it's like an amazing window glass, an amazing kind of thing. Um, but they, they said, okay, we realized that, um, you know, people wouldn't pay that much money for it that we, that we needed to it. So they laid it to rest. And so someone in the audience goes, hey, hey, but have you considered what this would mean for solar? Have you considered if you put that technology into a solar device, how much energy that would absorb? And so that is how serendipitously their solar division emerged. Um, you know, later they would say, oh, my God, it was such a coincidence that this person was in the audience and realized that they could use that for another product. But actually, they created a process that made it more likely that these kind of accidents, happy accidents, can happen much more often because they opened others up to it and, and enabled people to connect the dots for each other. Now, a big one is also around reframing uh, situations. Um, so I've been doing a lot of work with Reconstructed Living Labs, which is a fantastic organization coming out of the Cape Flats in Cape Town. And um, by the way, this is one of the organizations where I feel I completely changed my own view of, of, of the world. Um, I, I went there, I think the first time around like eight, nine years ago, and I asked um, the, the founder uh, of, of one of the, one of the subdivisions, um, uh, so what should I, coming into your context here, never ask, you know, like as, as the person who assumes uh, they, know, they know some things. And he said, never ask me what I need. Because if, if your first question to me is what I need, you put me into the role of the victim, of the beneficiary, of someone who needs something from you, versus someone who comes in here and says, what can we do together? What is he already? And then we can still kind of help each other and, and still, you know, you can still whatever, but, but really kind of starting with a symmetry rather than like an asymmetry um, that, that puts someone into the role of a victim. And, you know, that really stuck with me because I think their approach has been a lot around saying whenever they, so it was set up by people who came out of very rough conditions, former drug addicts, former drug dealers, like, like very tough conditions. Um, but they go into a local community and instead of saying, how can we bring in resources here? They say, what is already here? There's an old garage fantastic. That's a potential training center. There's a former drug dealer. Great. That person will be very creative and resourceful and probably mm -hmm. has amazing social capital. So if we can turn them into a teacher, fantastic. Then we have like someone who has a lot of legitimacy. And so the point being that what they do is they reframe a situation away from resource constraints and, oh, what is not here? So from a lack to what is already here and how can we make the best out of that and, and really build on this? And so this is how they, you know, they have a low income a low, low cost uh, education methodology, like, hey, here are five steps to use social media to build your business or stuff like that. And so they easily kind of bring that into local communities and scale that up by working with local organizations that integrate it into their model. But the key point is that they look at everyone as 
that what they could be rather than what they are at the moment. And by doing this, they become extremely creative and resourceful and, you know, create a lot of own luck because they, for example, um, even with small things, you know, like they have a budget, um, uh, budget template where if someone comes and says, I need 50 chairs for an event or something, they would say, well, you first have to answer a couple of questions. First question is, do you really need the chairs or can you use something else? So can sit, people sit on the floor? Can they sit on the bench? Can they do anything else? Or if you really need it, does someone around here have them? Does the restaurant around the corner, uh, maybe it's closed at exactly the time you have your event so you can borrow their chairs or whatever it is. And only if you go through all these different questions, then you can actually get the resources. And the point is you reframe a situation, you make people more creative because they're like, oh, maybe I can solve that problem differently as opposed to just getting in the money and, and, and trying to, to solve that budget. And so I think there's a lot to learn from organizations like our labs um, for organizations around the world in terms of how we rethink that. Um, and we've, uh, for example, applied that with banks, where if you have a bank, you know, that says, oh, we have to close down our branches uh, because, you know, uh, people who worked as like tellers, so people who worked as the cashiers on the desk, um, like there's no need for them, we have a machine. Well, but if you look at that differently and say, someone who's a cashier probably has a lot of knowledge about financial stuff. So turn them into a financial trainer and the old office becomes a financial training center. And so once you reframe kind of like situations away from, you know, what resources to what could be, then people become extremely creative in, in creating those kind of things. That makes a lot um, of sense. And so there's, there's all these different things also in companies, companies like Philips and others. There's a tomography division that focuses on tomography and da, da, da. But these divisions were usually focused on solutions, right? The problem now is if you put someone into that box of a solution, they will not think outside the box, right? Because they always will think about how to improve tomography. But if you step back and say, what is the bigger problem here we're solving? Maybe it's precision diagnosis. Then call the department that because now people will not only think about tomography and how to improve it, but about all other ways precision diagnosis could work. And so they think much bigger and much more broader in their, in their opportunity frame. So you can see how the, the way we frame language, both for ourselves, but also in companies, restricts usually how innovative and how, how new we can think and how much serendipity can happen. Um, Let me ask you a question, Christian, yeah. because you use the example of the coffee spilling. So for someone, it's very easy for someone to say that if you're extroverted, it's easier for you to say that when you walk into a coffee shop, you speak to the person sitting next to you or you would, you would ask probing questions. Whereas you have someone who's introverted will say that I would just go to the coffee shop. I'm not really going to talk to anyone. So would you say that it's easier for someone who's extroverted to cultivate serendipity? Uh, it's a great question. And I think, you know, um, I'm a closet introvert. Like I'm actually, um, you know, I, I have spikes of extroversion in situations like now. And then afterwards I have to hide in the toilet because I can't have like too many guys. <laughs> to down, you know? And and so um, I'm actually like a big kind of fan of trying to figure out what are practices for introverts, particularly that help us, you know, have more serendipity. And one of the things that I found fascinating is A, that a lot of serendipity actually comes from quote unquote silent sources. So it isn't necessarily just, you know, us running into someone in the coffee shop, but it's like seeing something in a book or like, for example, going another street to work and then seeing something in the window or like observing something. Because a lot of times, you know, um, um, some of you might have had that when you have that like shower moment, right? Where like Eureka, like you come up with, aha, like something um, you realize. And these kind of moments is our subconscious working on things and connecting dots for us. 
because we have seen something or we have realized something. And so that's really about having open eyes, like with the money, like in the street, right? Like being able to open our eyes to what's out there in newspapers, in like the windows of shops, of like all these different other things. Um, but also there's a lot of practices we can use, right? So one thing I do, for example, is when I go to an event and I don't feel like talking with everyone, I try to find the host and I talk with the host about like a new idea or something and then essentially do it in a way that I know that the host will walk around now and talk about the idea with other people. And so the point here is that we can also find our own ambassadors or people who do it for us so we don't have to do it ourselves. Oh, that's, that's very interesting. So when you put it that way, I mean, the next question that comes to mind then is, um, what percentage of life will you say is luck in general? Like what percentage of life would you say? I mean, because it comes down to, you've talked about being able to see the opportunity and being able to harness it. But what percentage of life would you say that it, the opportunities are actually presented to you versus you actually going out there to seek the, to seek the opportunities? Yeah. Well, that's interesting because I feel most of the times it's, it's a, it's an intersection, right? Between like that opportunities like are like literally in every conversation, in every situation, there's something in there, but most of the time we don't realize it. If I have a conversation with a very old friend of mine and we have talked like for 50, like not 50 years, but like for 20 years, um, about like uh, always the same stuff. And then I slightly change questions, talk about other things. And they tell me about a new friend they made who, uh, does xyz i can then say oh my god coincidence um my friend did something similar let's put them in touch whatever it is the point is that in every potential conversation in every potential even in those situations where we might think there's nothing in there because we know the person already or whatever it is there's still something if we adjust the situation and so you know in research for example we know that up to 50 percent of innovations and inventions are coming from serendipity so they come out of unexpected things and in life, it really depends on how much of a serendipitous mind you have. If you don't like have a mind that is a serendipity mindset, you have very low serendipity, right? Like then you're this kind of unlucky, like the, 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 the person I mentioned in the example where you're walking around and you think life is always the same and you think that's for everyone, but actually that's because you didn't like prime your mindset towards it versus you have other people who are walking around and have it happen all the time. And so, you know, that's the kind of people where you would just say, oh, they seem to be a bit luckier. What are they doing different? And you will see, right? It's a lot of things. I mean, including the kind of energy they have, including the kind of like way they approach life and so on. So, but you can very clearly see the differences in, in that. Um, but to, so to your question, I think if you train your mind, uh, people like this have serendipity all the time uh, versus mm -hmm. if you don't, okay. then, you know, very little. Okay. Thank you for answering that. Um, okay. The other thing, I, I mean, a question that has come to mind as well while you were speaking is you said a lot of innovation happens through serendipity. And when you talk about a lot of organizations, organizations like to plan. They like certainty. How do you make a case for serendipity in the business setting? Yeah, well, that's a great question because so I work with a lot of large organizations that, you know, obviously when you have a CEO of a large company, they need to go to their board and say, I have a plan, right? Like if, it, yes. if they can't do that, then like, you know, they don't have a future there. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but the point here is that what, what the most successful leaders that I've been working with do is that they essentially have a very clear sense of direction, a very clear North Star. So they, mm -hmm. you know, someone like Paul Pullman, who was running Unilever or other kind of key leaders, 
what they do is they know like they know where they're going approximately. They know at Mastercard, for example, Ajay Banga, he he was like, look, I know that I want to lift 500 million people out of poverty by making them part of the financial system, and so we can leverage our capabilities to do that, right? So he has yeah. a very clear north star, and he can sell that north star. But he also has the openness to the unexpected by saying, I have approximately a strategy here, but if you come with something better, we will adjust the strategy. And so that is something, you know, I, we have that happen here in the US where you, you have all these different states and you have all these state governors who a lot of them failed because they essentially said, this is our exact plan of when we will open up. And so a lot of them said early on in the year, we will open up exactly on April XYZ, exactly on May XYZ. Correct. And so, of course, they failed because now whenever new unexpected information comes, they have to revise the timeline or they have to hide the data. Versus mm -hmm. like Cuomo, what he did, the, the governor in New York, he at the beginning missed a little bit of this. But then he said, OK, I have a North Star. I have the two principles of economic and public uh, health uh, uh, kind of safety. Right. Um, so these two kind of economic and, and public health as the two principles that have to be fulfilled. But okay. here's an approximate timeline. But I tell you already now that I will revise the timeline as, as, as soon as we have new information. And that made him really credible because people know that you can't know everything. But people also need a sense of direction. They need to see that someone has the kind of like legitimacy to know what, what they could do. And so he, in a way, built extreme authority because he was always in control because he said, I will not always be in exact control of when I can do what, but I can show you what my reasoning is for why I adjust the timeline. And so that gave him like an amazing control. And so that's, I think, the, at the key, right? That we have this illusion of control where we think as leaders, the more we give specific details of like a timeline, the more we are in control, but that's a fake illusion. That's that's completely detrimental to how the world works. It's actually the real leaders like say, here's, a, here's where we're going, but you know what? Like we need to adjust this depending on new information, like with the potato washing machine example, if you ignore this now, the new data, because you're saying, no, 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 we know exactly how a washing machine works, then you miss completely these new opportunities and the same in, in all other examples. And so the point is that with, we, we derive a wrong sense of, of control by um, specificity, um, but actually a lot of times it, it's more about sense of direction and then being able to, to cope with the unexpected. That's by the way, I mean, we had a wonderful conversation. Right? The, I remember one of our calls around um, this uh, this idea, right? Destiny versus versus um, yes, destiny. correct. And, and you know where you mentioned that? Um, how do you reconcile the idea that there might be kind of like something bigger out there, right? Correct. Like, yes. So, and and then at the same time, serendipity. And you said something beautiful, right? Around how at the end of the day, yes, there might be like a bigger theme out there, but you still got to buy a ticket. You still got to do something, right? You still got to act on something because it will not just be given to you, you got to work for it as well. And so it's really this kind of same thing with like how you formulate a strategy, but then also are open to how the world actually, you know, needs to make sense out of your strategy. Yeah, I think the way I reconcile that with my faith is I always say faith without work is dead. Like you have to, in a way, I mean, you can say you believe in something, but there's, there's that work you have to do um, on your end. Thank you so much, Christian. Okay, I'm going to take questions from the audience. The first question is from a student from the University of Ibadan. Thank you for your insightful session, um, Dr. Christian Bush. How do I know which serendipitous moments need, need be followed up on and what, at, at what point to stop channeling my energy into a lost cause? That's an interesting one. 
That's a fantastic question. And, and yeah. it really comes to, to the question of filters, right? Like at any stage, like how do we filter, you know, because especially when you, when you have a serendipity mindset, you will have serendipity happen all the time. And so it might actually get too much, right? It might distract you. It might be something where if you have to write a book or something, right, you can't have serendipity all the time. Otherwise, you never get it done, right? The same in companies, yes. uh, it, you know, in R&D stages at the beginning, it's great to have a lot of serendipity to see, you know, new products and everything, but then it's execution mode. So you got to focus and you got to get things, things there. Um, a couple of things I found very useful. One is to do a serendipity journal. So to write down something like what is my personal North Star or my sense of direction of where I'm going. So in my case, for example, my five years of my life, the next five years of my life are about um, taking the content of this book and saying, I believe so much that this is how it can help a lot of people live a more meaningful life that I want to get it into more curricula, into more companies, into more like into more settings where it can be provide uh, useful. And so whatever fits into that, I want to have the serendipity happen. When I run into someone or have a call with, with someone and they tell me about an initiative somewhere and it fits to that bigger North Star, then I'm like, oh my God, such coincidence. Yes, that fits. If it doesn't fit it, I'm like, hey, this is great. Let me note that down on my parking lot. Let me let me write down this idea and I'll get back to you in a, like whenever I feel I have this part here done. And so it's really about this idea of like clarifying what is the, the kind of broader curiosity or interest or principle that I'm focused on at the moment. And then it, it has to fit into that. But also then um, really kind of pragmatic things around what I've seen, for example, in my life. The reason I like uh, serendipity journaling is because I'm thinking about what are the patterns in my life where I've had that happen more often versus less often. And then I try to understand what are these things. So, for example, I'm spilling a lot of coffee. So I have a lot of serendipity in coffee shops. I'm dropping things in the supermarket. So I have serendipity <laughs> in the supermarket. Right. So I'm thinking about these patterns. But a lot of times these like incidences you know, I can then prepare myself. How do I act in these situations? What will I say in the next situation when it happens and stuff like that? So I can create it. But also I've been much more conscious of when do I stop it? A kind of conversation where I feel it doesn't lead anywhere or, or other things. And so I think it's also writing down, like, what are the kind of like red flags from like, okay, not doing that anymore. This was a waste of time. Usually this is this. And so really kind of becoming more conscious about how do I work and function? And what is it about that that really provides meaningful versus that that isn't i love when you say that i remember from our conversation i had mentioned to you that for me i always say that it's very important for every individual to understand the rhythm of their life because everybody's life has a rhythm the way things happen the way things work and i mean to, to the earlier question i find that knowing my rhythm makes it very easy for me to filter things to know what i'm wasting my time on and what i should further pursue i mean yes you have outliers sometimes that com come completely out of the left side and they don't align with your rhythm but majority of the time 95 percent of the time i find that most events that occur in my life sort of they have a rhythm a consistency across the board so yeah next question we have um from um the vice chancellor um, at the university of johannesburg Cult is like cultivating serendipity seems as an individual self-motivation matter. As a follow-up question asks, how do you bring the team on board as it requires behavior change and different mindset? So what would you say works better on individual setups? That's such a fascinating question. And obviously would love to continue the conversation. By the way, you seem to have a wonderful audience. I mean, it's fantastic questions and fantastic individuals <laughs> seem to be in the audience. And so kudos for that. Um, Thank and you. That's, that's, that's on, it's a great question. One thing I found really useful um, in organizations is kind of rituals and practices that get people 
um, like used to seeing the unexpected not as a threat but as an ally and seeing it as something that actually is to be expected. So, for example, um, you know, some organizations in their weekly meetings they would ask questions such as "What surprised you last week?" or "Was there anything that you came across last week that mm. should revise our assumptions?" And so, you know, then it might be that if you're leading university and um, you know, last week, one of the academics observed that students, um, you know, don't attend online courses anymore, even though you just had a big strategy around like pushing everything into online. Like, you know, usually we might want to not talk about it because we're like, no, no, we just derived this new strategy and we should like just kind of push through now with fully virtual. But now if that that came up, that students don't really use the online and um, then it is an opportunity, obviously, to dive deeper into what is it about it, how we can improve it and so on. And so it's really kind of these small nudges rather than big shifts. It's really about uh, can we ask small questions in meetings differently that get people into the idea that it's okay that we can't figure everything out um, as long as we articulate it, as long as we learn from it, and as long as we do something with it. And I've seen that also, you know, in terms of when we think about things like performance reviews, how people get promoted, like every structure, every process in an organization, we can rethink from that perspective to, for example, celebrate people more who unexpectedly came across new things where they say, oh my God, you were really alert, you were observant. Let's celebrate the serendipity person of the month or like all these different things. And so I feel it's really about integrating them more into processes, but also celebrating and legitimizing it more by highlighting those kind of role models and others who are really doing that more than, than others. And the beautiful thing then is what happens. So I, for example, work with some organizations around when they have new people come into the organization, training them in the mindset and then essentially the beautiful thing that happens is that at the end of the day like once it becomes like a cultural thing that people are open to it like now people like share ideas much more frequently they get much more into it and so you know people are always afraid of of oh might they then get distracted but actually as long as they have a clear purpose or north star towards what they connect the dots to to mm -hmm. what you said earlier right like you mentioned that if you have this kind of rhythm of life you can also have that for a university, for a company, right? This kind of rhythm of what are we connecting these dots to now so that we know where we're going. And, and I think then the serendipity actually benefits the organization a lot because it leads to innovation. It leads to kind of also the sense of belonging. Um, and maybe a last point on this, I'm a big fan at the moment of, you know, when people are more virtual and more at home to do things like um, random coffee lunches, for example, where the idea is that you... Um, um, you know, usually in quote-unquote real life, we had a lot of water cooler moments where you just bump into someone and then serendipitously you come up with something new. At the moment, you'd have that less. And so the idea being that um, you ask people for their times, like there's different platforms like Slack or others you can use, and then asking them for, for when, when they are free in the week, like one or two times, and then you randomly match them with someone else in the organization that don't know and give them an inspiring question like, you know, like, what are you most inspired by this week or something, and then let them talk for an hour. And the fascinating thing is that people develop a deeper sense of belonging because they feel, oh, now I've, I've, I'm, I'm still running into other people within the organization. It's still happening that I'm not completely disconnected. And again, so I think there's a lot of practices like this that can help us to, to have more serendipity in our life. And then we can translate that into, you know, the organization asking, like, tell us, like, what came out of it or, or whatever, whatever that is. That's a great recommendation because I know, I mean, considering that everybody's watch, working virtually right now, that's a concern a lot of organizations have had. It's like, how do you replicate that random um, water cooler moments in the office? And that's a really good idea. 
So while you were speaking about, uh, while you were answering that question, I was thinking, how is the serendipity mindset different from the growth mindset then? How do you differentiate them? Yeah. Well, I mean, the growth mindset is great because it's a lot about saying that you're constantly learning, right? You're constantly mm -hmm. like, like in, in motion. The serendipity mindset really is about reframing like our life towards mm -hmm. away from like a passive idea of, you know, um, how luck happens to an active idea of how luck happens. So there's a lot around, you know, um, beautifully like building on growth mindset in the sense of how we can frame some of our mind towards it. Um, but it's much more than that, right? It's about the way we structure our networks. It's the way how we mm -hmm. think about corporate culture. It's the way of how we like essentially organize everything around us as a philosophy of life towards creating more serendipity, but also then the daily practice of doing it. And so I think there's, there's a lot in there. Um, and I think I saw uh, another question also um, around like the, the kind of habits that we can all take on yes. in day-to-day in, in -day interactions. And I think, you know, the, to me, the, there's this interface between there's the daily practices so you know a lot of exercises we can do and that's actually a big focus in the book to say these are like the many exercises we can do to really kind of develop our serendipity muscle like to really kind of set ourselves up for it um by the way we ask questions or by the way of how we engage with people and and so on but also then i think like the philosophy is super important and actually that's something um i, I like just to share with you also the 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 kind of um um a deeper philosophy behind it because i think that is really what's behind the mindset which is that at the end of the day serendipity is about potentiality it's about mm -hmm. what could be it's about who we could be but also you know yes the former drug dealer could be a potential teacher um mm -hmm. i could be so many things you could be so many things um, but also there's so many opportunities and that's actually what goethe said like hundreds of years ago um, and the philosopher of me just loves this this idea that, that he had here which you can see here that if you take someone as they are you make them worse but if you take them as what they could be, you make them mm. capable of becoming who they can be. And that's oh, really what that. that serendipity is all about, that serendipity mindset about saying, you need to see a little bit of the potentiality, what can be, because then you can connect the dots to, to all the potentiality that's out there. And I think that's where it gets really exciting. A growth mindset is a, is a part of that. Um, but then, you know, potentiality needs a lot of other things that, 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 that need to meet. A question from Victoria from Obafemia, from Kogi State University, sorry. Um, life comes with uncertainties and a serendipity mindset helps us to, better, to be better prepared for these uncertainties. But how can one apply a serendipity mindset when one is bereaved of a loved one? That's an interesting question. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a fantastic question because, um, you know, it, it, I think I've been thinking about this a lot. So I've been doing quite a bit of, um, you know, personal kind of interactions with um, people around me who have had cancer or who, who died of cancer and, and, and other means. And, um, you know, I think there's, like, if you think about a serendipity mindset, like, I think the, the, a lot of it is around saying what is, like, that, that, that in every period, even if it is a very tough period, like, there are ways of, of not alleviating. We can never alleviate grief, right? I'm still grieving of the people I've lost. And, and I've had situations in my life where, you know, like people that were very dear to me um, have been lost. And I think there's strategies that we can um, take right around um, 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 meditation, perspective taking, other things that, that help us alleviate a little bit of it and then reframe it um, into how we are grateful for the time we, we had to spend with the person and, and other means that make it a little bit easier. Um, it's not a panacea. I don't think 
you know, I, I, I wished I had a golden bullet, which would like just say the grief is gone. I, I, unfortunately, I don't think that's, that's possible. But um, something that I've seen in my own life, uh, overcoming my own grief, um, what has helped me a lot in relation to, to the, the serendipity mindset has really been about this idea that in, even in the most tense of, and, and tense of situations, there's always like things always somehow go on in some way. And, and this is why I like the, um, the, the book Search for Meaning so much because mm. so Viktor Frankl, um, he was um, in a concentration camp. So he was in the Holocaust, which obviously is the toughest situation you can ever imagine. People next to you are dying every day. Um, your close friends, you see them kind of like being, being taken away. Um, and you think that every day you might die. And he had this kind of beautiful um, thing where he talked about that every day he would still talk to one fellow prisoner to make them feel better. And by doing that, he felt more meaningful, right? He felt better because he felt every day I can still do something that is meaningful. Every day I can, I can do something. And so rather than making a big kind of step in terms of, oh, I'm going from grief to non-grief, he just did small kind of behavioral things where he knew that he would feel better if he did them. And I think that is also a lot in, in this mindset to say, we probably can't radically change the way we feel, but we can by kind of like, you know, opening ourselves to the joy of the moment, by opening ourselves to um, the meaningfulness of every potential situation, we can kind of get back a little bit of that positive distraction in the sense of like the positive feeling about life and, and how it can guide us. And so I think that's where Viktor Frankl has done a lot of beautiful work also around if we have that North Star and that sense of direction where we feel there's still meaning in life. And then in the day to day, there's like still a small purpose in every day. I feel to me that always has helped most with grief because it, it keeps us going until the grief feels easier and lighter. And then um, I, I think then like many more things can come to that. So long story short, I don't unfortunately think I have a silver or golden bullet, um, but I feel like these kind of like small behavioral things around how can I be helpful to others? How can I do things in my life that in a way feel meaningful, that in a way feels like gets us going and then things get easier over time, I think, in terms of how to, um, to cope with those, with those situations. And I, I mean, I've, I've been a big fan of Adam Grant also, who has done a lot of work around grit and resilience and this idea that if we think about similar situations we've been through that we navigated well or other things where we know that we are resilient as a, as a human, um, that has helped uh, a lot as well, I think. Thank you so much, Christian. Final question. This is a question we ask every speaker that comes on. What advice would you give to your younger self, considering that majority of the participants of the program are just starting out their career? So what advice would you give to a younger Christian? That everything is just made up. Like everything, <laughs> like, you know, like, 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 look, like all these things of like respecting like someone who has exquisite authority position or something. I mean, come on, they just landed in some way in that position. Everyone assumes they know everything. But at the end of the day, there was a lot of kind of blind luck in there as well. There was a lot of kind of things that, you know, all these things of how institutions work. If you look at companies, you know, you, you might wonder, like, why there's so much bureaucracy and stuff. Well, you know what, like, at some point, people just settled with something, right? And like, it doesn't mean it's the best <laughs> thing. It just means like someone just made it up. And so the point is, I think, to me, that's been helpful in, in later stages, um, because it has shown that you can influence almost everything and you can do mm. a lot of things in life because you can create a lot of things, recreate a lot of things, reshape a lot of things because nothing is in stone. And I think that is something where, um, especially my work in, in extreme low income contexts, I found it fascinating where, you know, this idea that 
you know, I think there's structural constraints that are always there and I think we have to work on them um, and that's extremely important. And at the same time, I think we all also like, you know, I see that myself, like I have a lot of self-limiting beliefs. I have limiting beliefs in terms of, oh, am I worthy of this? Am I X, Y, this? Or, you know, mm -hmm. is this the right time? But the point is we are holding ourselves back and, and, and we can really do so much in the world um, that's literally waiting for, for that. And I think this is what I really liked. And the reason I came in today is, is really that I feel this is the, this is the, this is the time where you can really shape so many things because people question so many assumptions at the moment of how the world works and how it should work that I think you can shape so much, especially when you're starting out now. So I'm just very excited for you to, to, to have this exciting journey ahead, especially also with such a community, because I feel that obviously, you know, if you think about what makes people successful, it's usually the kind of people around them, right? And so if yes. you form this wonderful coalition of people who are similarly kind of realistically optimistic in the world and shape things, I feel that's the best you can you can have and do. And so I'm just super excited about this. And, you know, um, closing maybe on the, it's my um, my second favorite quote after the Goethe one, which is um, the Margaret Mead's um, idea that you should never doubt that a small group of thoughtful citizens can change the world because it is the only thing that ever has. And, and you know, I think that is really the kind of key idea that at the end of the day, everything can be shaped if you can build small coalitions of people. And um, I, I just wish and hope that this room will do that. And um, if I can be of any help, I mean, please do feel free to connect on LinkedIn. Um, I'm Christian Bush on LinkedIn, at Chris Serendipit on Twitter. Very much looking forward to, to keeping in touch and hopefully seeing how a lot of good things come out of our conversations. Thank you so much. Well, we look forward to having you in Lagos, hopefully next year. Hopefully you can, make, you can make it down to Lagos. Thank you so much for your time and um, we'll connect to you very soon. Have a wonderful day, Christian. Thank you so much. Thank See you, everyone. And thanks bye. for me. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us today on the BMGA Leadership Speaker Series podcast. To be a part of our journey, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review or potential question for our future guests on bmgaenterprise.com/podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn for more insight into the acquisition of relevant skills for the fourth industrial revolution.